everybody. Welcome to Coach's Corner. I have one of my friends back on the show. Sean was last on the show. Gosh, oof, way before 2020. And so it's, it's been a minute. And last time he was on the show talking about sleep. And today he's on the show talking about eating smarter. But eating, it's not just about eating. It's about living smarter. It's about connecting deeper. There's so much juicy stuff we get into in this interview. And as usual, Sean drops so many facts that will shock you and so much wisdom as to what to do with these rather shocking facts. So let me tell you a little bit more about Sean. Sean Stevenson is the author of the USA Today national bestseller, Eat Smarter, and the internationally bestselling book, Sleep Smarter. He's also the creator of the Model Health Show, featured as the number one health podcast in the US, which I have had the joy of being on and will be on again this year. It has millions of listener downloads each month. It has millions of listener downloads each month. He's a graduate of University of Missouri, St. Louis. He studied business, biology, and nutritional science and became the co-founder of the Advanced Integrative Health Alliance. Sean's been featured all over the place, Forbes, Fast Company, New York Times, Muscle and Fitness, ABC, ESPN, and many other things. What I love most is that Sean mixes his passion for living a healthier life with a lot of expertise and knowledge. There's a lot of people out there that say things and are super passionate, which is great, but it's not really backed up by research, legitimate research. And Sean, I hope you won't mind me saying this, is a nerd for research. And I love that he has that foundation of research, information, and facts that back up so many of his suggestions. And I think you'll really feel and experience his passion for this and be motivated to not only eat smarter, but live smarter. And speaking of eating smarter. One of the ways that you can do this is make sure you stock up on your Organifi goodies. Their green juice, their red juice, their gold and or their immunity packets, all of it will improve your health and is so easy. You can just mix these packets in water or make smoothies out of them. I like to make little turmeric lattes out of Organifi gold. Organifi is a company you can trust. They've been a sponsor of mine for a very long time. And you can always get 20% off any of your orders when you go to Organifi.com slash over it or use promo code over it at checkout. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash over it. And now onto my conversation with Sean Stevenson. Sean, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you back. It's been too long. We have too a long. lot to talk about. So much to talk about. And I just, I have so many, so much respect for you for so many reasons. I have massive respect for you as a husband and father. We'll talk more about that for sure in this episode. I have massive respect for you as a leader, for you as a podcast host, for you as a researcher, just for you as an overall person. You know, I've been in this space for a very long time and the people with integrity, that are really walking their talk and are really committed to helping people touch my heart deeply. And you are one of those people. So just thank you for being you. Thank you. Uh, I received that. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I think I've said this to you before, but I just want to say it again. Like you were somebody when the whole pandemic was happening that had the courage to just keep presenting things for us to think about and information and, and facts and didn't do it in a supercharged way. And that was just a great example of leadership. And when I see people that can lead like that, I lean in further. And I know that there's a 
there's, there's a lot I can learn. And so I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot from, from you today. And I don't even know all the questions I'm going to ask you, but I know I'm going to learn a lot. (laughs) Uh, That's amazing. Thank you so much. You know, what's so weird, of course, like I'm from St. Louis, born and raised in the heartland and, you know, moving here to LA at the end of 2019, which is a very interesting time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just being out, you know, walking around now, I'm just blown away that like, literally I could be at, you know, sitting outside of a restaurant, you know, with my family and somebody comes up to me and just like, the main thing that people say is you helped me to stay sane, you know, Mm -hmm. the last few years and really helped me so much with my family. And I can't thank you enough. And it's, it's strange because most of the time I was just like in my studio with my team and I spent so much time in research and, you know, working with colleagues, you know, my, my friends who are, you know, physicians, epidemiologists, and, you know, just trying to present things in a way that is empowering, you know, Mm -hmm. there's so much disempowering information Mm -hmm. and experience the last couple of years. And just to remind people that they have some agency in this life and that they have an opportunity to make choices that are right for them. And, You know, this really points to overall, and even this conversation moving forward, how unique we are, you know, and having any kind of one size fits all approach to anything, you know, societal wise, you know, is oftentimes going to end with a lot of dysfunction. And so right now, as a matter of fact, I'll just share this, which is so crazy. The CDC just published some data uh, just from last year, 2022. They've now established that 60% of American adults have at least one chronic disease now. Oh my gosh. And 40% have two or more. And now what that really means is that it's now in a place as a a society, in our culture, where being healthy is abnormal. Mm -hmm. It's no longer the norm. And this is very strange. Like we've never experienced this as a species you know, we are really in the United States, we are the most chronically diseased culture in the history of humanity. Of course, we've faced many different challenges as a species throughout our history. But right now, and this is according to JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, this was published in 2018. There are many other studies like this, but they definitively disclose that poor diet is the number one cause of these multiple epidemics of chronic disease. Mm. You know, there's a bunch of other stuff mixed in But what I did for many years working as a nutritionist and a researcher and a teacher, many times I would work with people to target behavior changes. Like, you know, this thing is what's harming you, do this. And we got some great results because I can frame things in a way where they can take agency, you know, really take, Mm. you know, some, some responsibility. But what I really understood over time is I'm helping somebody or encouraging somebody to make a behavior change and then sending them into a culture that is counter that behavior change, that is really in many ways anti that behavior change and encouraging them to do the opposite. And I realized I was in essence doing something similar to our paradigm, which is I'm telling them to treat the symptom instead Mm -hmm. of addressing the underlying root cause of this issue, the behavior manifests from the culture that we're in. And that's what this new project is really about because we don't realize this, but when but let's define culture really quickly. Our culture is the shared 
attitudes, beliefs, values, and behaviors that are then passed on from one generation to the next. Yeah. All right. So most of this stuff is subconscious. We do what we're exposed to. We choose based on what we're exposed to. Our cravings are cultural. We're probably not going to crave fermented shark if we don't live in Iceland, you know? And I don't know if anybody in Iceland <laughs> craves that necessarily, you know? But there are people in different cultures that crave different things based on what they've been exposed to. Here in the United States, we develop abnormal cravings for ultra-processed foods. You know, food scientists, as brilliant as they are, have come up with, and I'll just throw one quick thing in, there was an invention called a gas chromatograph, which researchers were able to basically identify the chemistry of flavors, right? So they can identify the chemistry that makes the strawberry flavor in a strawberry. And now by isolating that flavor chemistry, now we can add that chemistry to things that are not strawberries, right? So now we have strawberry soda, strawberry ice cream, yeah. strawberry candy, no strawberries necessary. And this is a new invention in our evolution. Whereas we evolved when we ate that strawberry, our cells would essentially take notes. It's something called post-ingestive feedback. And our cells would take notes on what came along with that flavor, what nutrients came along with that flavor. And so eating that strawberry, we might've got some vitamin C, we might've got certain amino acids, we might've got some you know, selenium or whatever might've been in the soil and in that environment. And so our cells are like, okay, cool. This is where we, if we have this deficiency in any of those things, we're going to trigger this craving, craving in this human being. So they seek out more of that. Now, with flavors being so disrupted, it's really muddied up those metabolic waters. And so in our culture, we don't really hear accurately the cravings that our body is essentially sending to us. And there's a certain part of the brain, uh, the appetite regulating network, and this is in, the, in our hypothalamus. And so not just the craving, but also the amount that we're driven to eat, all of this stuff is getting fuddled. And so mm. my point being, and this is the last little piece of this, is that if we can target cultural change, but not kind of global cultural change or you know society-wide cultural change, that's hard. And I've spent years trying to do it. <laughs> Made some ground, but it's very difficult. The most remarkable and powerful thing affirmed again and again and again in the data is helping people to create micro cultures, change the micro culture in their household. And it starts with us mm -hmm. because when we can create a culture in our household that makes healthy choices automatic, we can create choices, create a culture where choices for certain movement practices, for to eat certain things, and where certain things aren't even accessible to us, like a hunter-gatherer tribe, for example, that, you know, the Hadza, they don't necessarily know that they can get a hot dog at Quit Trip. It's just mm -hmm. like, it's not in their reality. It's not in their culture. And so that's really the goal is to help people to create healthy microcultures and make it fun. That's the that's, that F word should be a part <laughs> of all of this because mm -hmm. that's what actually makes it enjoyable and sustainable. Yeah. And we're going to unpack that. There's so much you said in there. We're going to unpack the microcultures and making it fun. 
in a bit. I want to circle back because what you said was so important about how there's so many subconscious beliefs and behaviors and attitudes that we're subscribing to that have a lot of power over our life. What do you think some of the biggest cultural beliefs or sort of systematic beliefs are that are running at a conscious or subconscious level that are the most dangerous right now? That is such a fantastic question. All right. Just even using that example of the Hatsa, right? This hunter-gatherer tribe that mm-hmm. there are a couple that still exist on, on, on the planet, but within their culture, there's a subconscious belief that if I don't move, I will die. If I don't move, I cannot procure food for myself and my tribe. So movement is required in order for me to live. Mm. Here in the United States, movement is optional. All right. Mm. We can literally press a button or two. That's the maximum movement on our phones and have food put right into our hand. Mm. So much of our movement has been pulled out of necessity. And some of these innovations are wonderful. Absolutely. We don't want to villainize the innovations. But when we become completely reliant on that and we've taken movement, i.e. an essential nutrient for our genes, our genes expect us to move out of the human template, we're going to manifest disease. And what a disease really is, you know, kind of across the board, if you want to change your framing on this a little bit, a lot of the times diseases are really adaptations. These are adaptations for our bodies to survive under unideal circumstances, mm-hmm. right? But we get that disease label and now it's our identity. And of course, the model that we have is we treat we treat it with a medication or surgery or whatever the case might be, but we never address what's causing the adaptation or change of function in the first place. And so that would be one of them that's pretty blatant in our culture. It's kind of a cultural contagion that we don't move much. We're the most sedentary society in the history of the world. And by the way, when I say we're the most chronically diseased nation in history, I'm just going to rattle off these stats. Number one, I already mentioned 60% of American adults now have at least one chronic disease. About 130 million Americans have type 2 diabetes or prediabetes right now. Mm. A lot of the data that I'm sharing, by the way, this is from the CDC. This is from the NIH. And you know, top tier peer-reviewed journals like The Lancet and the BMJ. Also, we're now knocking on the door about 75% of our citizens being overweight or obese. Prior to the pandemic, we were already at 42.5% of our citizens being clinically obese. And this is based on BMI, which is, you know, it's a controversial metric, but we know what we're talking about when we're talking about obesity it's not an NFL running back who's 5'10 and 220 pounds. We're mm-hmm. not talking about that. We're talking about the manifestation of excessive amounts of belly fat that then create conditions where we see all manner of chronic disease risk skyrocket. You know, something like endometrial cancer that has just shot up the last couple of decades, seven times higher incidence of developing endometrial cancer if we venture into obesity. And um, of course, heart disease, diabetes, 60% of American adults now have some degree of heart disease Mm. and 110 million Americans regularly have uh, sleep issues or are sleep deprived. And I can do this all day. I can go on and on and on any category 
you could you name i could give you the stats on it the point mm-hmm. being we need to stop for a moment and ask has what we've been doing been working no is it working are we okay <laughs> no <laughs> and that is the bottom line what we've been doing is not working we are now sicker than we've ever been and a lot of people will say things like you know and i used to think this too you know i've been in this field i'm now at my this month is my 21st year working in this field mm. and i used to of course like early on especially when i was in 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 college I would say, you know, I would have this belief, this subconscious belief that we're living longer. Humans keep living longer and longer and longer every, you know, decade that goes on. That was true until about 20 years ago, which most people have not gotten the memo yet, which is so true of a lot of published research. Oftentimes it takes about 10 to 15 years before uh, new discoveries are actually put into clinical practice and education. Even in the age of the internet, there's this huge lag. And so the trend of our lifespan increasing has now reversed. Oh, wow. This is now, first I'm hearing of this. Yeah. This is now the first generation. Our most recent generation of children are the first generation that are not projected to outlive their predecessors. All right. Since we've been documenting this in human, human longevity and lifespan, dating for centuries now, it has continued to increase. Now it's going backwards. That's when we need to stop and say, hey, something is wrong with all of our apparent innovation and all the stuff we seem to know, why are we sicker and why are we beginning to die younger? Plus, and here's another contagion, it's not necessarily that we're living longer. In many ways, in our society today, most people are dying longer. We have an extended suffering period where we're riddled with disease and dysfunction on a slew of medications. And we're just getting by, we're just getting along. And now there's so many different specials and things like that and books coming out about this and these, these areas in on the planet where they have the highest ratio of centurions, you know, people living a hundred plus years old, but it's not just about hitting that mark. It's even, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, in 50s, 40s even. Mm. What is our functionality? What is our state of health? Having access to mobility, having access to physical power and the ability to move, having significantly less diseases and dysfunction, that's what's possible. There are many cultures still on planet earth that don't experience the degradation that we do as they age. So we're not just talking about lifespan, we're talking about health span. And so that contagion really is our perception, all right? Having false beliefs about health because we're right now existing in a paradox to where we know so much, but we are so sick and so disconnected with all of this apparent connection that we've never seen. And I'll throw one more of these cultural contagions out there, by the way. Um, So I talked about the movement aspect, but in the new Eat Smarter Family Cookbook, I actually target three specific cultural contagions when it comes to food. And one of those, and this was crazy because any of these, there's so many different diet frameworks out there. And I'm grateful to say, you know, I know the top people who are like the face of all of them. These are my friends, 
you know, from the uh, raw vegan camp all the mm-hmm. way to the carnivore camp. I know all the people, <laughs> all right? And everything in between, keto, paleo, you name mm-hmm. it. These are my friends and they all mean well, they do. And they've seen great success with certain people. But what you don't hear about is all the people that their framework doesn't work for. Right. So we don't want to get into a place where we're too rigid and dogmatic and make sure that certain options are open to different people at different times. And I'm saying all this to say that one of the one of the things that's definitely a concern, but then it can be used as a strategy to health wash and make something look healthy by food marketers is the term gluten-free. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. especially living in LA, it's a, it's a big thing. You know, yeah. you go to a place, it's like, you know, it's gluten-free this, gluten-free water, you get gluten-free <laughs> Wi-Fi, all the things. Like it's a, it's a must. But truly, there are other components that are potentially more concerning. Mm-hmm. And it's not about even villainizing a food, potentially, if we're talking about wheat that's been in, in kind of, you know, integrated into human culture for thousands of years. Some people would say, and based on some interesting data, that that marked the degradation of humanity. But at the same time, we've got to look at, like, for for example, my, just being real, you know, like people all the time, they leave the country and they're like, yeah, I was eating bread and all these things. Right. You know, it's a different ball game. And my wife is from Kenya. And so they've had certain grains as a staple and even you know, a neighboring country in Ethiopia, fermented bread, for example, being a staple and seeing extremely low levels of chronic diseases in these populations until they take on more of the quote, modern diet. And so I'm saying all this to say one of the cultural contagions right now we have to be aware of is not not grains themselves, but what's happening to grains. Mm -hmm. And the World Health Organization has classified glyphosate you know, yeah. this particular insecticide that has been making its rounds, people know about, a lot of people are aware of, but I don't think they understand or have been told about why it's so controversial. Well, the WHO classified glyphosate as a group 2A carcinogen, which means that it's probable cancer-causing agent in humans. It probably causes cancer mm-hmm. in humans. So- Keep in mind, this is just one of the pesticides, herbicides, rodenticides used to grow the grain products that millions of unsuspecting people are eating each day. And the the EWG, the Environmental Working Group, published some data, and I feature this in the book as well. And they, and this is again just coming from my paradigm is like I'm just I'm a nutritionist, so I'm like looking at the grocery store, looking at the store shelves. It looks like all this variety right? There's all mm. there's aisles and aisles of all this different stuff, but most of that food is made from the same things. Right. Most of it is made from grains, from oats, from corn, from soy, from wheat, just packaged up differently, different food dyes, different levels of sweetness, different artificial flavors. And they published this data and they found glyphosate contamination in 80 to 90% of the popular wheat-based products on store shelves, which is a huge oh amount gosh. of the grocery store. So again, this is crazy pants. This is the one fact of those that cultural- glyphosate still like is legal is just like, it boggles my mind. This stuff is still, is even out there. 
Like, I just don't even understand. That part. Exactly. Exactly. And it's kind of caught up in red tape right now. And I could go through a dozen of other concerning things that it's not just the food itself. It's how it's grown. And Mm. the fact that these things are still legal. And by the way, these companies, Monsanto, I'm from St. Louis. Monsanto was like, they would come, they'd be at the job fairs at my university. I wanted to work there. All right. It just seemed Mm. like a prestigious job and a good place to work. And there's a lot of good people that work there, but they knew the science was there early on. They're scientists and also, you know, um, peer reviewed data from other scientists examining some of these impacts. It's been around for quite some time Mm. of the potential problem. So that is the question. Why is it still in our food supply? We can spend our time trying to go after Monsanto, which (laughs) I spent time, you know, trying to educate people on. But the most powerful thing that we can do is control the controllables, right? right? Focus on our microculture in our household and see all kinds of good stuff start to happen. What if we buy like organic brown rice or organic brown rice pasta? Are we avoiding those chemicals? Or are they just like in everything at this point? So what I did, actually, I shared a bunch of cool little simple charts of scary choice, sufficient choice, mm-hmm. and smarter choice in the book, because there is a range with these different things. If we're talking about in the context of, you know, say wheat, um, we can have the conventional, you know, the stuff that's on show, the stuff that I grew up with for sure. You know, I grew up eating Wonder Bread and I wonder why oh, yeah, they call Twinkies, it hostess, all that stuff. Yep. The hostess factory was by my friend's house. And oh, you go there and get stuff for like, you know, a quarter of the price. And just, it was crazy. It was crazy pants. But, you know, that number one, what you, what you're experiencing there, this is not the amber waves of grain that we hear about, you know, in, uh, you know, kind of our historic, historic references. This is genetically modified dwarf wheat that cannot really even grow without human intervention. And so if we're going to, that, that's in the scary choice. That's obviously littered with glyphosate and all manner of other issues. But a sufficient choice would be, hey, let's go ahead and get organic, right? Mm-hmm. Let's get organic grains. The smarter choice would probably be something along the lines of a sprouted grain, mm-hmm. bread, or the like, you know? And it's just like, sometimes it's just flipping a switch in the mind to know that that's available. And this is not an advocation for everybody to eat grains or to eat bread. But if we want to eat that and it feels good to us, mm-hmm. what is the best version of this that is number one, not going to cause harm, but also can potentially add to our own health blueprint. Yeah. 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 You know, it's, it's something, I mean, gosh, there's so many things that (laughs) just get me so riled up. Uh, There's so many different directions I can go right now. I mean, one of the things that really just was so hard for me during COVID was that we had everybody's attention. We had this massive opportunity to like help people make health changes to educate about eating better and like how you can help your immune system and all of that. We had like a captive audience and it didn't happen. Instead, it was like fear and all that stuff. But anyway, we we can't go back and change the past. All we can do is learn from it. And right now we have an audience that's listening. And what I really hear you saying is that 
you know, you and I aren't going to take down glyphosate like on our own right now. <laughs> I wish we could, like, I wish we were that powerful, but what we can do is be educated and informed about the choices that we're making and actually like understand how much what we're choosing to put in our body impacts us without being too rigid about it. And this is, this is leading up to my question. So I know for you, somebody that knows so much about everything, how do you not be like, cause once you start to go down these rabbit holes and learn, if you listen to Zach Bush, talk about our soil, for instance, you kind of go, well, am I just going to become a breathitarian? Because like, where is there really like good sources of food to eat? How do you not get into that mindset of being too rigid that you kind of stop enjoying food? That is such a great question. You know, for most people that have found some some peace and are enjoying life and enjoying food and very health focused, but like in a real way, not like in the education that I was given when I was in college that I paid for about nutrition, but like in a real way, you know, most people go through a phase. They go through a phase of being very irritated. They go through a phase mm-hmm. of a lot of finger pointing. They go through a phase of being rightfully angry or sad or feeling a lack of trust. And, you know, the list goes on and on with our expression of frustration for knowing that so many dangerous things are not just available in our society, but they're the only things promoted. Yeah. Not even most. They're the only things promoted. You turn on the television or all the YouTube ads. Now, if you're trying to escape television or whatever app, if you've got ads popping up, they're not for broccoli. They're not for, you know, grass-fed steak or whatever. They're for processed, ultra-processed foods. They're for cereal. They're for soda. They're for beer. They're for, you know, fast food. The list goes on and on and on. And I just saw that. I was hanging out with my youngest son. He was watching his favorite YouTuber and showing me some video. And it was like four ads for ultra-processed foods. Mm. And they were the only ads on there. And I'm just Mm. like, are you kidding me? You know, so we go through that phase of being upset about those things. And some people live in that. They never quite let it go. They don't, you know, move beyond that. And there are many people who are completely oblivious to any of that stuff. And, you know, there's one of those things, ignorance is bliss. Yeah. Until, you know, a disease sets in, which that's my experience. That happened to me. That happened to essentially everybody in my family, an extended family, everybody had at least one Mm. chronic disease. That's just the, that's what I grew up in. I just thought it was normal and you had no say in it whatsoever. And that's really the way that we were educated as well. And so ignorance is bliss until it's not right. Right. And so really the place that I'm grateful that I, that I live, you know, as, as far as my psychology and also that I'm representing and teaching and advocating for and creating a space for and others is yes, being aware that there are some major issues with our food system. There are some major issues with our medical model today and being so Mm. symptom focused and not really helping people to remove the causes of their illness. But what I found is this place of peace where I realized that, you know, Yes, we can, again, understand that that's going on, but let's focus on what's good. Let's focus on 
all the amazing things that we can experience and that we have access to that our ancestors worked so hard to get to us and kind of pointing our attention at the abundance, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's really, that's kind of one of those secret things that shouldn't be a secret, you know, this, because as I was making that transition and, and in so much anger and frustration, I was unaware of the abundance. I felt like mm-hmm. less and less was available to me. I felt like I was more restricted. And right. yeah. we have this innate thing as humans, we want freedom. Right. And right. that freedom still is based on our culture. It's based on what we what we are exposed to because that freedom, that freedom of choice is based on what's been promoted in in our culture. What let me mean what I mean by that, let me explain that. Um, <laughs> there are people in Cambodia, for example, and other places in the world, but you might visit Cambodia right now and be surprised to see that, one of the delicacies is deep fried tarantula. All right. Yum. Yeah. <laughs> so whole different perspective of Spider-Man, like for real, it's different. Mm-hmm. All right. And, you know, in the, in, in a culture where that is a food option, that's, that's normal. It's not weird. It's not like scary. Right. It's not like, oh, is, am I going to die? You know, it's just what, the individuals have been exposed to. And so they have a freedom of choice based on the options that they've been exposed to. And here's another cool po- point about this and where some of the power is, and also the way I structured this book, having too many options can be debilitating. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. So there's the paradox of choice. You know, Barry Schwartz had some great work on this many years ago, but having so much access today it seems like it seems like we're so rich in mm-hmm. opportunity and things to to eat and sometimes we can get in this like automated thing but again what we've been exposed to that abundance is largely ultra processed foods that's the abundance we've been has been put front and center in front of our face yeah well yeah and i think too we live another belief that i think we've bought into culturally is that being busy is just how you live you know, like, and, and I don't know any parent, especially really any person, especially any parent who isn't some, in some way, shape or form, sleep deprived, busy, all those things. So when we go to what's for dinner, preparing like a home cooked meal with natural ingredients can seem really daunting to people. Is that one of the reasons that you wanted to write this book? Because I don't see your, your book eat smarter as a cookbook. I see it as a book and with recipes. <laughs> I just got it a couple yesterday, but in flipping through it, there's so much education in there. It's, it's, it's more than just a, a cookbook. At least that's my experience of it. But was that one of the reasons you wanted to offer people like an, an easier approach to start thinking about eating healthier? Yeah. Thank you for that. Because this is, this is something different. This has never been done before. There's over 250 scientific references in a cookbook. Mm-hmm. So this is very unique, but also again, presented in a way that is entertaining in a way that's like super easy to understand, like the most important takeaways, uh, of course, you know, laid out in a beautiful way as well. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we worked really hard to, to make it like that. So this will be, and I'm already seeing this as well. Some of the people that have got early copies, just like, it's just existing in their kitchen. 
now, you know? And it's so wonderful because at the end of the day too, let's eat as well, you know? But part of that, the most important aspect of this and why I wrote the book and one of the things that we can take control of with our microculture is all the shocking, I cannot believe that this is not on every billboard and taught to us or in at least in our education system somewhere, but all the benefits that are seen when people eat with people that they love, when mm. people eat together with friends and family. I'll start with the study that was conducted with researchers at Harvard. They were tracking eating behaviors in families and food choices for years. And thankfully, I got my hands on the data and I was able to distill it down. And essentially, families that eat together on a consistent basis, those families naturally eat significantly higher amounts of fruits and vegetables and significantly less amounts of ultra-processed foods, namely chips and soda. And by default, it was ridiculous how much more essential nutrients those families were consuming that helped to prevent chronic diseases and avoiding toxic nutrients or toxic Mm -hmm. food compounds that are riddled, that we're getting riddled with in ultra-processed foods. So that was step one. That really started me down this, this path. Two other studies, like how does this show up as far as chronic disease prevention? One study was published in Pediatrics. Another was published in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. The researchers found, and I'm I'm combining this together, I'm smashing it together for everybody, but essentially eating together a minimum, this was the minimum effective dose, with your friends and or family three times a week led to the children in those families, their risk of obesity plummeted. Mm. And their risk of developing disordered eating dropped substantially as well. There was something protective about eating together with those children. And I'll share one other for adults. And there's more, of course, in the book. But looking at families from uh, office workers at IBM, and, you know, this could be a stressful job, you know, working in tech and all the things. And it was really fascinating the impact of stress that happened when they weren't getting time to eat with their families. And by the way, this was published in Family and Consumer Sciences. And they found that sitting down to eat with their families at the end of the day helped working parents to reduce the tension and strain Mm -hmm. from long hours at the office Mm -hmm. and kept their work morale high and work productivity high. But as soon as work started interfering with their ability to get home and eat with their families, their work morale dropped, their work productivity dropped, their stress levels exceedingly started to go up. And why does this matter? Well, stress, according to the Journal of the American Medical Association Internal Medicine, stress is the primary reason for upwards of 80% of physician visits today are for stress-related illnesses. So we don't think about stress as something that's causing disease, but it's like the, it's the seed of it. It's the seed of the manifestation, the downstream effects that we see outwardly. And so uh, to put a bow on this, my mission is to, and that's one of the walkaways for everybody today, to schedule it, to put it on our calendar, choose what those three days could be for you and your family. 
And if you've already do, if you're already doing this, amazing. There's a bunch of strategies to even make it more rewarding. But if this is something that you don't typically do, which is I didn't grow up eating with my family, I didn't. I can count on my two hands how often I sat down and ate a meal with my parents. It just wasn't a part of my reality, unless it was like maybe a random holiday. But had my mother known that this could help to protect our health in some way, she would have done it. She just didn't know. Mm-hmm. And she didn't know about the differences in food quality. You know, we were just, we just ate stuff and we ate what we could afford. And that mm. was the end of the story. Mm. And so whatever those days are for you, you know, it could be, you know, Tuesday, Thursday, and then family brunch on Sunday, right? Choose those three days a week and put it on your calendar. This is the most important part of it. We need to schedule it just like everything else is important. If our family truly is, and I've, you know, working as a nutritionist for many years and teaching for many years, when I ask people what's the most important thing in their life, the majority of the time, 99% of the time, they would say their family. And, And of course, following that up and asking, does your behavior and the way your life is structured right now, does that reflect what is the most important thing to you? Yeah. And the majority of the time, there was a mismatch there. And so just scheduling it today, especially when we're so busy, schedule it to make it real and give yourself grace. Because if you're going from uh, not having this being a kind of staple in your family culture, there's going to be different things that come up. That's what life always does when we're trying to change our culture, trying to change our activities and our habits. Mm -hmm. We're going to go through a little bit of a struggle phase, but I promise you, there are so many rewarding things that we could do along the way to make the process more graceful, more fun. And also ultimately at the end of the day is to create more connection with the people that you love the most. And three days a week, like three meals, three meals a week. That's, that's doable. Like, and, and like you said, even if you start with one, that's it makes a huge difference. You know, I, I still remember my family dinner as like something that, was a staple in my house, you know, and made a big difference. And especially if I hadn't seen my dad all day and he came home from work and we were able to have dinner together, it was, you know, and as a kid, sometimes you're like, oh, I want to watch TV and I don't want to eat this roast beef or whatever. But my mom, I really acknowledge my mom for, for creating that because it was such a beautiful ritual. Um, and I think, I think helped me a lot. Uh, I want to go back to the busy question for people that may be thinking, you know, I'm too busy to cook. I'm too busy to do this. What's, what would be your coaching to them? Ooh, it's so good. Okay. There's so many different ways to to address this. And again, we don't want to approach this in any kind of cookie cutter fashion. We want to have some science-backed strategies, but also we have to identify what works best for us. And, you know, just a, a last little transition point is why eating with your family and or friends is so transformative is that when we're with people that we love, suddenly there's a switch over from that sympathetic fight or flight to the parasympathetic. And one of the things we've identified is you produce more oxytocin, which blunts or even counteracts the activity of cortisol. And in addition, just the fact that we have it scheduled incites subconscious planning. You know, I can go on and on and on on why this works, but I just want to share a couple of reasons because I'm a big why person. And for folks that, you know, 
as I experienced as well, you know, having young kids and, you know, going to school at the time as well and in my university. Oh my goodness. I mean, talk about not having time. Even when I did make time to prepare a home cooked meal and, you know, my kids would ask to help. This is one of the, like, writing this book, it actually had a couple of sad moments for me because of all the times that I told them no, because I was just trying, I was laser focused, trying to get this done so that, you know, everybody has to get to school and work tomorrow. And, you know, and I, and I miss some opportunities, but as soon as I caught this, I really started to exercise that yes muscle. Even when I felt the, the unrest in me and the little person would come in there and say, you know, dad, can I help? You know, it's just like, yes, absolutely. And, but over time now, like eating, you see my oldest son, for example, in the book, man, he actually, which is crazy. Like I never told him to do this, but because he's in the culture, this is what he does. He's a superstar personal trainer now and helping so many people. And I even get messages sometimes like from parents of kids that he's helping, you know, just thanking me for, you know, I guess bringing him into the world. I don't know, but you know, just to see what happened when I start to say yes, he's arguably the best cook in the family. Don't, don't I'm, let me not say that. My wife is the best cook. Let's be clear. I don't want anything to get out on the streets. <laughs> but when he's in his bag, when he's cooking, wow, it is so amazing, you know. But it was just those times of saying yes and allowing him to get involved and being able to slow down. And so, having a life structure where time is tight. You got a lot of stuff going on. Here's a, a couple of uh, additional tips. Um, one of them, again, just even on the grace side of things, if we do plan to have you know those three meals and something comes up, or even maybe we can even plan one of the meals to be like this, you go ahead and DoorDash. Go ahead and and, mm. and order a pickup or you know a carryout or get some food delivery but plan to sit down and eat together without distractions. Mm -hmm. Because the data also indicated that when TV, when the television was never or rarely on in one of those studies looking at minority children, they had significantly less intake of ultra processed foods and higher intake of real whole foods, fruits and vegetables, five days out of the week at least when they ate at least four meals with their family. You know, that's what they indicated in that study. But overall, the majority of the data says three meals is that minimum effective dose. And so that's what we, we actually just had that happen like two weeks ago. My wife got caught up, you know, she was getting her, I think her nails done or eyebrows or something. And she was <laughs> hanging out with her technician and, you know, LA traffic hit and she planned on cooking and, you know, she hit me up kind of last minute. And I was like, ah, oh, man, it's our family dinner. The boys already know. So I just, boom, I hit the DoorDash app. You can get, of course, some higher quality options. And we sat down and ate together still. You know, mm. we still made it a great experience in a moment in a, in a moment to connect. Mm. And so that's one of them is just like having that in your back pocket. It doesn't have to be you're cooking this elaborate meal. Uh, another thing is simplicity, right? Simplicity. A lot of recipe books and some of them I love, you know, and some amazing recipes, but they could be too complicated, too time consuming. Mm -hmm. So I really focused on simplicity and I focused number one on deliciousness uh, and food <laughs> quality and number two, simplicity and also sharing strategies in the book for things like bulk cooking, 
All right. So it is so much easier to have that family dinner if maybe, for example, we th- we threw um, you know a, a bunch of chicken into the crock pot on Sunday night or Monday or whatever the case might be. And now we can make multiple meals with that. Crock right? pots are genius. Let me just say they they they're amazing. They save One so much time. One of the best inventions, right? <laughs> and you know the thing is, again, humans have been slow cooking things for centuries. Yeah. All right. And so now we could do, um, you know, Buffalo chicken tacos. We can do a casserole, you know, the list goes on and on. And now we've, it's now dinner is now 20 minutes of preparation instead of, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, mm-hmm. not sometimes not even 20 minutes, maybe even five or 10 minutes, you know? So yeah, just, there's so many different strategies and it's just really about finding what works best for you and putting it into play. Yeah. There's so much information like we talked about in your book. And I want to highlight a couple things, just simple takeaways for people. What's the number one nutrient for brain health and cognition that we may not know? <laughs> so as far as our, our brain health and cognition, you know, number one is looking at, okay, what is our brain made of? That's a pretty important question. And people hear this stuff, but we just are framing this in an entirely new way, which is the majority of your brain is water. All right. This is a very water rich organ and it's incredibly powerful, obviously, but the dry weight of the human brain is mostly made of fats, Mm -hmm. but not too far behind is protein, by the way, Mm -hmm. protein, these amino acid building blocks make up a lot of the structure of the brain too, but it is fats that are the most important and in particular, a lot of our brain cells have to last years and years, sometimes decades. They're not like other cells in our bodies that turn over. Our brain cells are truly, they're like diva status. They need to be taken care of. They need to be acknowledged. They need, to, they need all the good stuff. Or they're going to act out. You're going to have some problems. All right. And so what are the specific fats? Well, you know, over the years, of course, there have been big advocations for a variety of different types of fats, whether it's, you know, essential fatty acids, whether it's things like CLA, whether it's saturated fats, which makes up a significant portion of the human brain, by the way. And, Mm -hmm. but a lot of that, those gates, the blood brain barrier that allows in saturated fats are not like they are. They're essentially, they're not all closed, but they're nearly all closed in adulthood. A lot of those saturated fat gates that allow those fats to get into the brain are when we are an infant in, in early childhood. And this is why, and, and you know, this is one of the little fun facts is human breast milk is a huge percentage is saturated fat, mm. you know? So we're talking over 20%. And, you know, that's one of those things, again, it's been villainized in nutritional science circles, but then why is human breast milk so rich in saturated <laughs> fat if it's so bad for us? It's so silly. But it's the source. Where is that fat coming from? You know, is it coming from a real food or is it coming from something ultra processed and highly refined? Mm -hmm. And so I'm saying all this to say that what are the fats that we need now to support our cognition as adults and also for our children as well? Those fats that can cross the blood brain barrier and protect and help to essentially sure up and allow for signal transduction for our brain cells to talk to each other enable our brain to have plasticity as well. The list goes on and on. Those fats are DHA and EPA, right? DHA and EPA. 
docasahexanoic acid, DHA, and ecasa pentanoic acid, EPA. All right. Now, omega-3s for years. Working as a nutritionist, I would tell people, just get your omega-3s, whatever, you know, hemp seeds, hemp seed oil, flax seeds, you know, um, chia seeds, all these things, which are great. But those types of omega-3s are largely used as fuel. Those mm. are not the types of structural fats. Those are not used for structural fats in the body. There's a difference. And this is, again, I wasn't taught this in my expensive nutritional science class. You know, mm. like none of this stuff is just this kind of blanket thing. Fat does this, or, you know, there's one form of you know, even vitamin C, there's multiple forms. Mm -hmm. So giving people cookie cutter advice is negligent. And so bottom line is this, where do we find it? All right. Now, many people have heard this before, but fish like salmon, for example, is so popular. It's been like this for quite some time. And researchers at Rush University Medical Center uncovered that adults who eat at least one seafood meal per week do in fact perform better on cognitive skills tests. It's just what it is. And some some research, really kind of eye-opening research found, they, they actually used MRIs and looked at people's brains and they found that people who consume the least amount of DHA and EPA had the highest rate of brain shrinkage. Mm. All right. So literally losing the mass of their brain and four grams was that, was that marker. Over four, healthy, robust brains, brain staying thick. All right. Mm -mm. Mm. Less than that, brain starts to shrivel up. You get shrinkage. Nobody likes shrinkage of any type. <laughs> All right. So with that being said, targeting real food ideally is going to be great. And there's a, a variety with, when it comes to salmon. You know, there's some distinctions there with, you know, obviously there's a lot of farm-raised fish now and mm -hmm. wild caught. But even if you get something like wild coho salmon, that can be health washing because that's a type of fish. It's not necessarily wild caught. All right. And so oh, just little labeling tricks that are totally legal might be unethical. You've got to know a little bit about this stuff. But bottom line is this, there's a range of different types of salmon. There's a type of salmon called king salmon that just one six ounce serving, you can hit that four gram mark and then some, you know, so high quality fatty fish, but also you're going to find some of these omega threes in egg yolks. Mm. And, uh, but also what about for folks that are doing a vegan and vegetarian approach? Because this is inclusive, by the way, this is another, it's a very unique aspect of this book. We have, we are inviting everybody to the party. We don't mm -hmm. need infighting about what diet framework is the best yeah. mm -hmm. because the truth is most people are eating mostly ultra processed food and we're infighting about minutia. How yeah. we help people is getting people eating real food. And so we can jump to, by the way, we can convert some of the omega-3s from chia seeds and flax seeds and things like that into DHA and EPA. But depending on your microbiome, your genetics, you can lose upwards of 75, 80% of that conversion process. Mm -hmm. And you'll never reach the mark that you're trying to get to. So we can look to things like krill oil. We can look at things like algae oil as well, uh, supplementation. But I'm just a huge fan of food first and really doing something that our genes have interacted with for the longest period of time. And so last piece here is, okay, you might hear this cool science, but what are the best ways for me to utilize this? And so if you learn 
some of these cool things about wild-caught salmon. In the book, I've targeted just over 40 of the most science-backed foods, and then we use those foods to make delicious recipes. And each of these individual foods that we've targeted, they have their own associated emojis for what they're good for targeting the human body. So next to the wild-caught salmon, you'll see a little brain emoji. You'll see a heart emoji. And I share some research on cardiovascular health. You'll see a muscle emoji for its improvement of in metabolic health, by the way, which was featured. This is an eight-week randomized controlled trial published in the Nutrition Journal. Found that the inclusion of salmon multiple times a week led to significant reductions in blood pressure and body weight for mm. overweight individuals, right? And so in the back of the book, when you find the recipes, you'll see those associated emojis and you'll be able to eat for a purpose. If you want to eat for fat loss and metabolic health, these foods will support you. If you want to eat to improve your, your sleep quality or your mood and your mental health and support that, now we know what foods to eat. And my favorite dish, well, this is tough. I love, <laughs> yeah, I got to say my favorite one right now is the salmon burgers. They're, oh, I was going to try those. That they're jumped so good. <laughs> I highly recommend you out of the gate, go with the salmon burgers. Uh, but we also have this amazing honey sriracha salmon and um, so many other dishes, you know, utilizing another food like sweet potatoes, for example. Yeah, a lot of people can bake a sweet potato, but those anthocyanins can actually help to improve your memory that are in sweet potatoes. Mm. And so we made this delicious protein sweet potato pancake, and they are out of this world. And we're now using something that is more of a real food, minimally processed versus some conglomeration of different flowers, you know? And so, yeah, that's the, that's the thing. It's just like being able to eat delicious, delicious food that we all love, upgrading some of the ingredients. And again, most importantly, doing this with the people that we love the most. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm so excited. I can't wait to dive in more. I can't wait, wait to make some of these things for my daughter. And I'm just also having a small child and seeing she naturally wants salmon. She wants egg. She wants vegetables. She wants, you know, she, she likes fruit, but she's not even that, like she likes spirulina in her smoothie. Like it, it's, and I noticed through different developmental stages, like sometimes she wants more carby things. Sometimes she just wants protein depending on, you know, what she really needs. She's in a huge brain stage right now. And so she just wants a lot of fat and a lot of protein. So it's like, it's imprinted in us. We've just moved away from it. And so thank you so much for giving us a tool and a resource. Well, first of all, thank you for your passion for this and your leadership in it. And then delivering on that with such a great tool and resource that isn't overwhelming because that's what I really love about the Eat Smarter Family Cookbook. It's not this super thick book with these complicated recipes where you don't know where to start or why you're eating it. It's an easy to digest, pun intended, way to understand how we can change our, our family ecosystem and eat better. And, and you give us the why too, which I think is going to help motivate and inspire more people. If we understand why we're doing something, we're more inclined to do it. So I'm excited to dive in. I will report back on Athena's favorite recipes. I'm sure you're dying to know, <laughs> but, <laughs> but everybody can go to eatsmartercookbook.com. You've got some prizes. You've got some free gifts. What do people get if they order the book? They get some cool bonuses. Of course. Yeah. And of course, People can pick up the book anywhere their books are sold, their favorite bookstore, obviously, you know, places like Barnes and Noble, Amazon as well. And yeah, going over to eatsmartercookbook.com, we're doing a very special family health and fitness summit. And we've got all of these incredible experts in various aspects of 
health and fitness who have kids and who, you know, figured out some things as far as creating a, a healthy family culture for themselves. And you get to hear their insights, not just from me, not just from my perspective, but mm-hmm. hear from, from other people as well. You know, like how to save money on groceries with, you know, with the, with your family, how to deal with picky eaters, how to um, be able to, you know, again, just kind of make time when you've got a busy schedule and like hear other people's strategies. And I, I think I'm very excited about it because to put something like that together and to have all these voices in one place as a resource for, for families, it's like, it's a game changer. So that's just one of the bonuses people get access to. We've also got some incredible giveaways that we're doing as well for things like groceries, you know, things mm-hmm. like fitness equipment. And so, yeah, all that is going to be found at eatsmartercookbook.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sean. I'm I'm excited to to dive in. And just one last, like, super simple question, especially to the, the parents out there. Instilling these healthy behaviors to me can, like, give you more time with your children in in so many ways. That's why I really love this and and value this so much. My question to you is for people that may think it's too late, you know, what would you say to them? I love that question. No matter where your children are on that age spectrum, it's never too late. And I could tell you this from experience with two adult children and one, my youngest is, is 12, but I have two adult children Parenting never really ends, you know, <laughs> contrary to popular belief. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's just being able to pay attention to your child and where they are right now, because this is one of the most remarkable kind of superpowers of all of this is that we get FaceTime, like real world FaceTime to see our children. And most of our communication is nonverbal and to see their movements and to see how they're articulating things and you know, sometimes to catch things that might be bothering them that can be building up and festering into something, you know, that can be a potential problem down the road, but, and also having that time to offload and to express oneself mm. and to feel seen, you know, all of these things are powerful. So no matter where our kids are in the spectrum, it's, it's never too late to, you know, work to create a new trajectory for our families and to create again, that microculture that brings everybody closer together. Mm, I love that. Well, thank you for your passion in bringing our family meal and our families back together. Appreciate you so much. It's my honor. Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm. Everybody go to eatsmartercookbook.com or pick up your copy where books are sold.